All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. The Old Testament lesson is written in the 16th chapter of First Chronicles, beginning with the 28th verse. Hear the word of the Lord. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. Let the heavens be glad and let the earth rejoice. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar and all that fills it. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall the trees of the forest sing for joy before the Lord, for he comes to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Here ends the Old Testament reading. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Jenny. If you have a a Bible, go ahead and turn with me to uh, the Apocalypse of John, also known as Revelation, uh, chapter 4. We'll be looking at the whole whole chapter. It's a short one. Uh, If you have a pew Bible, it's on page 1,917. If you were here last week, uh, when we were in chapter 3, we looked at a letter written to uh, the church in a city much like our own here. We also looked at the mission that God had given them, strategically placing them to reach others with the message of Jesus, much like our own church here. But mission is not its own end. It's actually a means to an end. What is that end? What would we find following If the mission were accomplished, that's what we're going to look at today here in Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. This is God's word. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I had first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it, And the one who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. A rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in white and had crowns of gold on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Before the throne, seven lamps were blazing. These are the seven spirits of God. Also before the throne, there was what looked like a sea of glass, clear as crystal. In the center around the throne were four living creatures, and they were covered with eyes in front and in back. The first living creature was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had the face like a man. The fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night, they never stopped saying, Holy Holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. 
whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. As we read on in these next chapters in Revelation, we're going to see a lot of things unfolding. But before showing us what events will take place next, what will happen after this, as the voice says, We're invited into a scene. We're invited into the very throne room of God. It's a snapshot of heaven. It's it's a sphere of spiritual reality that we're allowed to peek behind the curtain into. And it's something that those who have already been called to mission needed to hear. What do we see here? Why is it relevant? And how should we respond? Three questions to consider. What do we see here? Why is it relevant? And how should we respond Well, first, if we look in verse 2, we see at the center of this scene, there's a throne. And the one sitting on it, described in verse 8, is the Lord God Almighty. And he's got company. If you go on to verse 6 and 7, we see on the throne, uh, seated around him, there are four living creatures. Their descriptions are a hybrid of all these Old Testament images of angelic beings. uh, Cherubim and, and seraphim from the books of Ezekiel and Isaiah. In fact, the whole scene is actually, it's a mixture, it's a hybrid of all these different Old Testament images of truth. The images uh, were of of a uh, being like a lion, one like an ox, one like a man, and one like an eagle, which would have echoed those Old Testament prophetic visions. Together, the image of, of both wild and domestic animals, along with man who rules over creation, and eagles seen to as rule over the skies, would have represented all of God's world, all of nature together. In the f- verse 4, though, we see that they were surrounded themselves by 24 other thrones and seated on them 24 elders dressed in white robes and wearing gold crowns. Uh, a lot of people have wondered, so, so who are the elders and, and why 24 of them? Well, 24 may not be like a, a big symbolic uh, number in, in Scripture, but 12 is. And if you double 12, you get 24, and people might have been thinking, well, there were 12 apostles, 12 leaders of the church, the people of God in the New Testament. Yet before that, there were also 12 leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel, uh, representing the heads of the people of God. If you combine them together, the Old Testament, New Testament people of God, uh, 24 would seem to represent the leader of God's people. Uh, 24 also was the number of the heads of the priesthood in First Chronicles 24. And Jesus has already described his church, his people, as, as a kingdom of priests, I mean, either way you look at it, they would represent the church, God's people. And as we see in later chapters, where those clothed in white were described as believers, as Christ's own body, this is the church represented amongst the 24. And yet who they are probably isn't as important as as what they're actually doing, worship. And what we see here in this chapter is what it means to worship. First, we see that their object of worship is what commands their constant attention. We see that in verse 5 where it says, What they do, they do day and night. What do they do? They they never stop saying, Holy, holy, holy. They constantly are rehearsing what is praiseworthy about the object of their worship. They're uh, constantly doing that also 
because of what they've done and also what they can do and what they continue to do. It's, it's what we see in verse 11. For you created all things, and by your will they were created, and they have their being. Not that this was their sole activity, but this was their constant disposition. Every action and act of adoration, praise ever on their lips. Not because someone's making them, but simply because they want to, because they delight in it. They worship God as the literal center of their universe, the center of their being. All of their lives literally revolve around him. They willingly give all to and for the object of their worship. That's what we see in verse 10, where it talks about what they do with their their crowns of gold, these, these symbols of authority and splendor and riches, how they willingly part with them. They give them over. They lay them down before their object of worship. Together with the four living creatures, they give honor and glory and and power uh, and thanks. In case you're wondering what's that all about, to give honor simply means to give something their proper place in our lives. To, To give glory means to give someone or something the appropriate weightiness or influence that their nature requires. To give power in this sense is to offer our strength and service of another. And to give thanks is simply to respond to what the other has done for us. It's a thorough, extravagant vision of worship. But why? Why why here? Why now? Why does Jesus give John and his church such an elaborate picture of worship? Or maybe you're asking this morning, what does this thing, this chapter about worship have to do with the rest of my life? You know, when I'm not worshiping. How is this relevant for us? Well, to understand that, for any passage of Scripture, we need to understand why was it relevant for those who originally heard this message. Christians who were in the midst in the first century of tremendous suffering and persecution and fear, who were tempted to turn their worship, to turn their hearts, to turn their praise elsewhere, away from their God. It's been said that when you look at a, a, a book that is written in the genre of apocalypse, like Revelation, The purpose of that is always to disclose unseen heavenly or future realities to help oppressed, suffering people understand purpose in the midst of their suffering and have hope for a future. They needed that because they'd be tempted to believe that God is not on the throne because all the powers that they can see seem to be working against them, Roman emperors and their minions out to get them. What they needed was a reminder They needed a picture that God was still on the throne, able to preserve his people, still worthy of worship and praise. They needed a scene just like this, where heavenly beings, those who see things as they are, not from a limited human temporary perspective, but from eternal perspective, see God as somebody that is still worthy of worship and praise and trust. Maybe that's you today. Maybe from your perspective, it's hard to see God as someone who's still on the throne, still in charge, still worthy of your trust and your praise. Sometimes we need a reminder that what we can see is not all that there is to be seen. In John's revelation from Jesus, he sees all of creation and all of the church. When they have the benefit, when we have the benefit of looking back in hindsight on the things that still lie in our own future today, that they don't have less reason, they have more reason to worship the one on the throne. Seven churches that Revelation was originally written to needed this image, but but we need this image too. And not just in the midst of suffering. And let me tell you, it's not because worship is something that we need to be taught how to do. I've got a picture uh, up here. Um, 
I took this picture at a St. Louis Cardinals game. Uh, in case it's not as clear for you, that says Game 6. That's not somebody whose last name is Game and he doesn't wear the number 6. That's as in Game 6. October 27th, 2011, World Series, St. Louis Cardinals versus Texas Rangers. My apologies to any Texas Rangers fans in the building. What happened that day? Why do we still talk about it? Why do they sell jerseys that say Game 6? It's because in the bottom of the ninth inning, when trailing by two runs, with the St. Louis Cardinals down to their last strike on the verge of losing the World Series, when all hope of victory seemed lost, something happened. David Freeze happened. Two-run, game-tying, triple, and we're going to extra innings. But then in that inning, once again, in the bottom of the 10th, the Cardinals are again trailing by two and would soon be down to their last strike. But then something happened. Lance Berkman happened. Game-tying hit. We're going to the 11th inning. And in the bottom of the 11th inning in a tie game, David Freeze happens again. Game-winning walk-off home run. And the sound you would have heard from my Las Vegas condo watching the game would have freaked out you and all of the neighbors. And yet, over a thousand miles away in Bush Stadium, with fans surrounding the field, there was joy, spontaneous dancing, and total strangers hugging each other for no apparent reason, shouting, we won! We won! And I, you don't want to correct them and say, well, you didn't actually do anything. Uh, but the one that they identify with did. And we share in the joy of their victory. Today, fans... I still love to sing the praises uh, of David Fries and Albert Pujols and Chris Carpenter, the heroes of that series, not because anyone's making me, but because the joy in talking about it somehow amplifies the joy of remembering it. And the hundreds of dollars that fans laid down to be there in person suddenly feels like a bargain. And in case you're not from St. Louis, the next day they finish the job. What did we see that day in Bush Stadium? A great multitude gathered, surrounding the one whose praises they sing, with joy unspeakable, utterly consumed by it all. And why? Because when things looked bleak, someone did something so amazing that can't help but be celebrated. And if it means laying down our treasures to come back for more, Game 7 tickets, it's a no-brainer. Is this starting to sound familiar? Like what we just looked at in chapter 4. That's worship. We don't have to be taught it. We do it instinctively. And it's not just something baseball fans do. We all do it in different ways. And it's simply part of what it means to be human. I don't know who was the first scholar to suggest this, but they said, you know, humans could probably be best described as homo religioso, inherently religious beings, those who are hardwired to worship, those who are made to worship. We're wired to seek something so amazing that we can get lost in it can't help but talk about it, can't wait to get more of it, and long for others to be able to share in it with us. That's why tonight an estimated 20 million or so will gather, not alone, but with friends in homes to watch the season premiere of a show called The Walking Dead. And then afterwards, they're going to two and tune another show called Talking Dead, where you literally do nothing but hear other people talk about a TV show you've just seen, and it's one of the most highly rated shows on TV. It's why we binge-watch TV shows on Netflix, watching one episode after another until it gets late, and, it's, and then really late, and then really late, and we can't believe we just watched half the episode and it's 4 a.m. And when it's done, 
We don't just say, well, that's done. No, we turn around to find the next show that we can get utterly consumed by. We want to get lost in something. We want to be consumed by something so amazing. And yet that reality plays out in more ways than we might think. It's been said that we'll give ourselves to trust in or follow whatever we believe gives us life. Whatever we believe satisfies our deepest needs. And whatever that thing is, and it's almost always a good thing. It could be baseball. It could be anything it eventually might become our ultimate thing. It can become our object of worship. See, like God's throne in John's vision, it can become the center of our lives, the thing that constantly occupies our minds. And like those in the throne room, we can soon find ourselves effortlessly devoting ourselves to it. It's what Tim Keller talks about in his book, Counterfeit Gods, where he writes, a counterfeit god or, or an idol, as they're called in Scripture, Is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living? An idol has such a controlling position in our heart that you can spend most of your passion and energy, your emotional and financial resources, all on it without a second thought. It can be family and children, or career and and making money, or achievement and critical acclaim, or maybe saving face and social standing. It can be romantic relationship, peer approval, competence, and skill, secure and comfortable circumstances, your beauty or your brains, a great political or social cause, your morality and virtue, or even success in the Christian ministry. When your meaning in life is to fix someone else's life, we may call it codependency, but it's really idolatry. An idol is what you look at and say in your heart of hearts, if I have that, then my life has meaning, then I'll know I have value, then I'll feel significant and secure. There are many ways to describe this kind of relationship. Perhaps the best one is worship. It was a few weeks ago that Dave Risco spoke to us about how our love of God doesn't simply disappear. It just gets redirected. We could probably say the same about worship. You see, it's not a matter of if we worship, only what we worship. We're all going to worship something, and what we worship matters. David Foster Wallace uh, was an American author. Um, Though he was born to atheist parents, uh, it was later in his life, just a few years before his own death, that he would actually say this while addressing the graduating class of Kenyon College. He says, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough, never feel you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Worship power, and you will feel weak and afraid, and you will need ever more power over others to keep that fear at bay. Worship your intellect, being seen as smart, and you will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. Paulus goes on to talk about worship as our default setting. It's something theologian John Calvin said centuries before when he said that the human heart is an idle factory. If we do not have a God before us to worship, we will make a God, or more often than that, we'll make one of his creations into a God. 
How can we tell if that's happened? How do we know what our object of worship might really be? Well, look again at verse 10, where we see in, in the 24 elders are laying down their gold crowns, symbols of authority and splendor. Just ask ourselves, where do we see ourselves doing the same? You see, the gold of the crowns was a symbol of their treasure and, and their wealth. Where does our treasure, where does our money go? What do we most readily lay it down for, even in ways that we know we shouldn't? What might our bank statement reveal about what we treasure the most? And yet, uh, those crowns were also symbols of authority. To what do we yield authority over our lives? What do we give more control over ourselves than it's actually due? What leads us to do things in our right mind we never thought we would do? What do we obsess over? What constantly occupies our hearts and our minds the way that the one on the throne occupies the worshipers in Revelation 4? What so captures our attention that we start to ignore everything else around us, even the things we should be paying attention to? What do we labor for, totally out of proportion to what it can give us in return? See, it's because we're wired to turn to that one all-consuming thing that can satisfy our deepest needs and solve our greatest troubles that we find ourselves addicted to substances, of falling into unwanted compulsive behaviors and turning to our drug of choice, whatever that might look like, that cure-all that we turn to to make the negative emotions go away or to simply make our problems go away. None of us is immune, no matter how put together and successful. In his book, Playing God, author Andy Crouch writes about the late CEO and co-founder of Apple, Steve Jobs. He writes this. Jobs displayed the incredible drive and creativity, but like all of us, Jobs struggled with idolatry. Surprisingly, his idol wasn't technology, it was food. Steve Jobs was obsessed with food in ways that dominated his life and relationship. As a teenager, he experimented with strange diets. At, At one point, he went for two weeks eating only apples. According to Walter Isaacson, his biographer, the various diets often based on raw foods gave Jobs an exhilarating sense not just of energy, but of control. Like all idols, his obsession worked at first. It was part of Jobs' larger project of obtaining to superhuman amounts of control over his surroundings and other people, intimately linked with his perfectionism. Indeed, Jobs' idolatrous relationship to food may have cost him his life. Because in October of 2003, a scan turned up islet cell cancer, a very rare version of pancreatic cancer that is slow-growing and consequently almost always curable with, with prompt surgery. But Jobs' idol, food as a method of control, failed him. Isaacson would write, Jobs decided to not have the surgery to remove the tumor, which was the only accepted medical approach. Quote, I really didn't want them to open up my body, so I tried to see if a few other things would work. He told his biographer years later with a hint of regret. Specifically, he kept a strict vegan diet with large amounts of fresh carrot and fruit juices for nine months. As his friends and family pleaded for him to have the surgery, yet Jobs refused. It wasn't until July of the next year that he did consent to remove part of his pancreas during the surgery, doctors found that the cancer had spread. He would never again be cancer-free until the day that he died. He was in the terminal stage, not of cancer, but of idolatry, when the idol ceases to deliver but exacts its full demand for unwavering worship. When the public became aware of, of Jobs being increasingly gaunt. Commentators speculated that Jobs' disease had, had come back with inventions, but what few realized 
was that his wasted body wasn't simply the result of cancer, but also his own dependence on control through food. You see, often the functional gods that we trust in are merely a way of getting something deeper we truly long for, what we often call deep idols, things like control and power and comfort, respect, approval, or people's acceptance. And yet whether you're Steve Jobs or someone else in this room, there's always going to be something that drives that idolatry in our hearts, drives our worship, whether it looks good on the surface or not. It's because no matter who we are, something always will captivate us. Something will always uh, cultivate and captivate our hearts. Something is going to drive us. Something is going to be our object of worship. And it's in the midst of that reality that Jesus gives the church this image of worship. How should we respond? Well, the reason every other uh, object of worship will eat us alive, in Wallace's words, is that none of those objects of worship are actually worthy of that response. None of them can bear that weight that we place on them. And so what we're shown here is actually one who is worthy, and with it a reason to join in their worship. First, because of who he is, You see, in verse 8, he's described as the Lord God Almighty, the one who is holy, that there is no one else like him. He is far above any other object of worship, one who is bound, not bound by the limitations of time and space, but rather the one who is, the one who was, the one who is to come, the one who is eternal. The 24 worshipped because they saw God's worth. They saw his worthiness. They saw the surpassing beauty of God. John attempts to describe it for us in in this uh, chapter, but in reality it goes beyond mere human words. That's why he has to reach for symbolic imagery that often was already found in the Old Testament. He, he, He describes one whose appearance was of jasper and carnelian, the one whose throne was encircled with what resembled an emerald rainbow, whose throne room floor looked like a sea of glass. John was shown a God far beyond what any mere human words could describe. And yet what he saw was that God was not alone. You see, the four living creatures who surrounded God's throne were themselves surrounded by 24 elders. God's entourage has an entourage. And together, they not only worship him because of who he is, but because of where he is. He is on the throne. He is the one who is sovereign. He's the one who's in control. From the throne, they see in verse 5, thunder and lightning, images of utter power echoing the scene of Mount Sinai, symbolizing power, but, but also his presence among God's people. He'll preserve his people because he is with them, regardless of their circumstances, even unto death. You see, knowing that God's in control actually frees us from trying to control other people and circumstances around us that we really can't control and whenever we do that, the only, the only thing that we lose control of is then ourselves. The only thing that we actually can control and are supposed to control. But there's more going on here. They go and they worship him for what he has done. Verse 11, it talks about how he has created and now sustains his creation. Saying, by your will, they were created and they have their being. Friends, every gift, every breath that we breathe is a gift of God. Even the abilities that we use to create, to produce, and to provide, and, for, and bless others, the things that people praise us for, even those are a gift of God. And it's not just that he made us, 
but it's how he made us. And the Psalms teach us that at the creation of humanity, God crowned humanity with glory and with, with honor as he made us to rule over his creation, his vice regents over the world. And so what we see in this chapter is that the pinnacle of God's creation, already crowned with glory and honor, now gladly cast down their crowns. They give glory and honor back to the one who gave them that glory and honor in the first place because they realize he's the one that ultimately rules over it all. It's the way things should be, and it's the way things will be. But what do we see now? What we see now is described uh, by Paul in Romans 3.23 where he describes sin, our crimes against God and each other, in terms of glory. He says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Because you realize that we live in ways contrary to our glorious design by worshiping the things of this world rather than learning to rule over the things of this world. Instead, we let them rule over us. And in the midst of that self-imposed slavery, all sorts of sins follow. People who bear God's image, rather than being an end in themselves, become means to our own end. We find ourselves worshiping the gifts of God rather than God as the giver of the gifts. Everything just gets out of whack. A number of theologians have looked at the Ten Commandments and have observed that the first two of the Ten Commandments, the two most important, are talking about having, making, or worshiping any other God than the real God because they realize that we don't violate any of the other Ten Commandments without first violating those ones. But it's also because God knows that making anything else our object of worship is inherently self-destructive. It actually hurts us. It's like trusting in a bridge that can't hold you. You know what's going to happen. Scripture says that it by nature leads to death. And yet not just physically, but spiritually, eternally cut off from our source of life because we chose to find our life elsewhere. And as we see the ways that we make gods out of everything else but the true God, we see the shame that it causes in our life. And so we try to cover over our shame with with denial or with better morals, better religious practices, better deeds. And yet, unlike being behind in a baseball game, it's not a plight that we can work ourselves out of by focusing and, and muscling up at the plate. It's actually more desperate than that. In the book of Isaiah, the prophet speaks of even our most righteous deeds as no cleaner than than filthy rags, something that we think will cover over our mess, but in their self-righteousness actually makes us more unclean in the process. But we find a solution in the passage right before this, in chapter 3, where Christ speaks about white garments to cover our shame, ones that he says only come from him. And yet when we look in this chapter... And the chapters to come, as we see that very thing, God's people clothed in white, their shame has finally been covered, and how is it possible? Well, it's through what theologians call the great exchange. You see, in that passage right before the one we looked at today, when Jesus is addressing the church in Laodicea, he says that they see themselves as rich, but they're actually poor, and invites them to exchange their riches for his much greater riches. Their resume, for Jesus' resume, the only one that comes with this on the top, the seal of God's own approval saying, this is my child whom I love. With him I am well pleased. The ultimate endorsement. But to be able to do that, Jesus first 
as to offer to take away our shame and take away our guilt by actually taking them upon himself, putting his name on our resume and dying for those sins on the cross, taking the place of all of those who see their need for someone to do for them what they know they can't do for themselves, those who know they need, we need, I need more than just a ninth inning hero. I need a savior. But doing so, doing what was necessary to do that, to be our savior, Jesus, in doing so, actually gives us a reason to remember God's love, but also a reason to worship. You see, when we're busy trying to be our own Savior rather than letting Jesus be our Savior, we'll cling to whatever control we can and whatever we treasure the most. We'll find that uh, we try to control things that we can't and lose control of ourselves. We'll find ourselves uh, treasuring things the most, but in the end, they end up owning us. The only liberation comes from actually finding a greater treasure, a greater object of worship. It's why we have a worship service every single week that retells the story of God's grace because we need that every single week. We need that every single day. It's why many of you spend time each week in your own times of personal worship, engaging with the scriptures, engaging in prayer, meditating on God's word, singing songs that help shape your affections because you know we need this worship badly. But worship actually goes beyond religious practices. In fact, in Romans 12, Paul uh, talks about uh, presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, as an act of spiritual worship, because he knows that all of life is worship. Everything that we do, all of our decisions declare to heaven and to earth what we find most delightful, most praiseworthy, most worthy of yielding control in our lives. And if God is not our object of worship, something else will be. Tim Keller put it this way. The God of the Bible is the only object of worship that you can live for and serve, that can unconditionally love you in return and fully forgive you when you fail it. That's why he alone is worthy of casting down our crowns before him, to yielding control in our lesser treasures so that we can possess his greater treasures. Back to where we started. What does this have to do with the mission of God's people? Before God calls us to a mission or to a task, he calls us to himself. He calls us to worship. As we experience the freedom of worshiping the only one who's actually worthy of it, we realize we can't help but want others to experience the same. I once heard a pastor talk about his uh, two-year-old child's obsession with an empty, used tube of toothpaste. He doesn't use it. In fact, he just holds it. And if daddy or anyone else tries to take away that tube of toothpaste, well, it kind of looks like this next picture we've got up here. Sorry, I couldn't find anybody actually holding toothpaste. You see, two-year-olds can be impossible. I'm saying that as a former two-year-old, so no hate. No hate. They cling to dirty, empty, sippy cups. They cling to half-used tubes of toothpaste. They even cling to carefully carved wedding ring boxes like in this next picture. This is Patrick. A few weeks ago, I got to work with uh, this rock star ring bearer at a, at a wedding. Um, and his job was simple. Look cute. Check. Uh, walk down the aisle. Check. He's doing good on that. And then eventually, as we'll see in a little bit, um, hand the nice monogrammed ring box to the nice man uh, in next, standing next to the groom. It's, it's a simple task, right? Maybe not. What might happen 
when the center of attention is asked to let go of the very thing that makes him the center of attention, that gives him what he so desires the most. What could go wrong? Well, there's a reality that maybe Patrick's not aware of. The box that he's holding is actually empty. Think about it. This is a two-year-old, right? The actual rings, which are actually worth real cash money, the best man already has those. Uh, But Patrick doesn't know that what he's clinging to is empty. How are you going to get him to give up the goods? Well, it's by offering him something better. Next slide. A snack. You see, the box was empty, but as Patrick sees, as he begins to smile, the little snack bag is not. And we don't have this in a picture, but within seconds, he's running up the aisle, having found something better. Instinctively, he runs right back into the arms of his father. Friends, if your faith is in Jesus Christ, you have a father who's given you something far greater than a bag of kid snacks. He gave his own son. You see, we too can cling in things, to things in ways that are really far out of proportion to their actual value or worthiness. And yet when we've tasted and seen one who actually is worthy of our worship, we'll find not only our hearts liberated, from lesser objects of worship and their empty promises, but we'll want more of the real deal. We'll crave the imitations less, and we'll find it only natural to invite others to share in the same, to join in the worship of the only one who's worthy. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for giving us in Christ not only a reminder of your love for us, but a reason to worship, a reason to see you as supremely over all, worthy of our worship, our praise, our trust. Father, forgive us for the ways that we've made anything but you our trust, anything but you our object of praise. Father, meet us now, even as we come to your table with this reminder of your love and your grace, your reason to be worshipped today. Amen.